but you took our sin upon yourself. But then you, you resurrected, Lord. To show us what's ahead. And you didn't leave it there, that was just the beginning. But you sent your spirit to live within us if we just receive it. So that in this world that's searching for identity, we can identify in you. And that you've given us this gift of your divine nature, this eternal life within us. That in the midst of darkness, we have joy. <laughs> it is a mystery, and yet it's true. And so, Father God, we, we thank you and we give you praise for what you've done. And Lord, we come before you asking you to fill us, asking you to teach us. We are hungry for you, we're thirsty for you, and you've promised that you would fill that and never let it run dry. So we ask you to speak through Pastor Jesse as he comes to teach your word. Bless him, Lord. We're eager to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn and give somebody some love. Maybe meet somebody you haven't met yet. Hey, 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 all right, good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. If you are in the foyer or the coffee shop, please come inside as well. All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Amy. If we haven't met, I am part of the staff here at Sierra Bible Church, and I am here to welcome you. If there is anyone new here or visiting, uh, we want to make sure you grab that card in front of you. It has information about the weekly happenings of SBC. We also have a gift for you at the info booth, so you can grab that on your way out as well. Some things happening this month and into next month. It is spring. Uh, it, this is the second service, and so you, if you are attempting to attend the Fundamentals of the Faith class, it is next door. Uh, it is happening right now, and if you are trying to be there, you're late. But if you aren't trying to be there, or maybe you uh, decided to come here instead, that's fine. This is our Fundamentals of the Faith class with John Drollinger. We had part one in the fall, and we took a little break, and so this is technically part two. But if you want to still go to this, uh, you can. Um, it is, again, second service the next few Sundays at 1030. Um, and, of course, if you were already in that part one class, we would definitely have you uh, want you to join this part two class. Uh, so that is going on right now. Uh, something else going on right now is that we have a team of 30 people in Mexico right now. 
And there was so ministries. They left on Thursday last week. Uh, they, I haven't heard, I'm their emergency contact, so I have not heard anything, so I think everything's great. Um, as far as I know, they crossed the border and they made it to where they needed to be, and they are going to be there through next Sunday. So uh, they wanted to make sure you, you remember that they were there to pray for them. Uh, they will be crossing the border next Sunday back into California and then make their way back up to Truckee. So please keep them in mind. Any um, donations that go to so for the month of April are going to go towards this trip. And again, the people there have already paid for their own expenses. So any money goes directly to the orphanage and directly to the construction of everything they're doing there. All right. And I don't have a slide for this. This is my fault. Uh, so listen very carefully. Uh, the women's ministry is putting on a spring tea. It's a women's spring tea. This is Saturday, May 13th from 11 to 1. So the last few months we've been doing ladies night. The first Monday. So talkative. The first Monday of the month. In lieu of that for May, uh, we are having the spring tea. And so just keep that in your calendars. Uh, we'll do registration for that as well, just so they can know who's coming. It is a free event. Uh, so with that, let's have Pastor Jesse come up with the book of Ephesians. Here he is. <clears throat> okay. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Sierra Bible Church. Uh, as Amy mentioned, my name's Jesse, and uh, I'm just... Uh, one part of a great team that helps serve this community. So thank you for being here. As Amy mentioned, uh, if you go on your phone or your device, we do have an application, an app. Uh, on that app tells you everything about us. Uh, we update that regularly with devotions, uh, sermons. Uh, there's blogs on there. It's, it's an endless resource. So just want to encourage you to download that, especially with the amount of things that are going on in our church. We are entering into summer and <clears throat> things kind of slow down to some degree and also speed up at the same time. So just find uh, what, you know, it's just one of the ways we have to communicate with you what we have going on. Uh, before we get into Ephesians, so I'll just say, uh, first of all, go to Ephesians. If you have your Bible or your device, whatever it is that you access your word of God from, go to that. If you want a Bible and you want to hold a Bible, whether that is to own a Bible or to borrow a Bible, raise your hand. And Travis here will gladly hand you one. There's a few, Travis, so you're going to get some exercise in since it seems to be on doing it. Um, and I want to handle one piece of business. So uh, it's a brief update on something that we've talked about uh, several months ago, and I just want to make you aware of what's happening. And the update has to do with our youth pastor, Caleb, and his wife, Missy, and their four kids. So uh, if you're not aware, maybe some of you are, Owning a home, renting a home in Truckee, California, is pretty easy to do. Yeah. Highly affordable, high accessibility, all that. Well, they've been staying in a house, renting a house that somebody uh, in the church has graciously been uh, allowing them to live in that house with their four kids for a really reasonable uh, rate, very cheap for them to be able to rent there. That time has come to a close. The house they're in is in escrow. Uh, it's going to be closing at the end of this month. They have a place for six months in Sierra Meadows. Uh, the owner of that home, again, is graciously allowing them to be there uh, in a way that's affordable. But they then want Caleb and Missy to move again in six months because they want to remodel it and then use it as a vacation home. Welcome to Truckee, right? 
that is just the reality that many of you have faced, uh, many are facing in our community. Uh, and so here's kind of just the update with that. Obviously, moving twice like that with kids and ministry is tough. It's not optimal. It's not what we want, but we don't get to uh, tell God how he does things. But he is part of our family here. We love him, and we want to keep him here in Truckee. That's the hope. And so one of the things I want to invite you to do is, is one, pray about it, obviously. Two, if you know someone that has something that's affordable for rent, uh, and that happens to be a miracle, great. Uh, let us know. Let Caleb know. Uh, or the other thing is they have, since they've known about this for a while, they've been doing due diligence to save. And they've been saving their money in, in hopes to maybe have a down payment there's actually some affordable housing that's available that they can get into, but they need more money in their bank account to even start that process. Uh, and affordable housing in Truckee uh, is, is oxymoron, right? Affordable housing in Truckee is not affordable. So they're doing what they can. And if you want to help in any way, uh, you can do that through the church. You can do that with him one-on-one. -on -one. But we want to make you aware of that because uh, we want to make sure that they're supported and, and uh, they're loved, that they can continue to reach the kids of Tahoe Truckee uh, area. So be praying for that. Amen? Amen. All right. We're going to go deep this morning. You ready to go deep? Uh, okay. Stand with me and we're going to read one verse. That's how deep we're going. <clears throat> one verse out of Ephesians. I want to give you the purpose of this morning's message is to give you a overarching view, a big highlight. A, let's take off in our airplane and take a look outside of the window and get a big view of Ephesians. And we're going to start with just the introduction, obviously. <clears throat> and this is how Paul introduces this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Lord, this is your book. These are your words. You have chosen to reveal yourself in Scripture. And so we ask that you would do that for us this morning. Reveal yourself to us, that we may all walk in you and in unity. We trust you for it this morning. Do your beautiful work as you always do week in and week out. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Please take a seat. Okay. This particular book, many call Paul's magnum opus. It's a tremendous book. Uh, it's a book about identity. It's a book about God. It's a, a, a book about the church. It's, it's wonderfully glorious. If we were to take this book and break it into two parts, we would do it with the beginning of the book, the first half of the book, and the second half of the book. There's six chapters in Ephesians. Six chapters in Ephesians, only 155 verses. If you were to go home, it would take you... Take you roughly 20 minutes to read this book aloud. But this book is an amazing book that describes to us the goodness of Jesus. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul, like he does in much of his writings, heavy, is real heavy up front with doctrine and theology. Really in chapters 1 through 3, what we're going to get as a church is we're going to get Paul's theological description of basically what the gospel is and how we are saved, and how awesome and beautiful that salvation is, and the inheritance that we have in Christ, the blessings we have in Christ, the riches that we have in Christ. And then the last half of the book, chapters uh, 4 through 6, 
are all practical. This is really important for us as Bible people who believe in Jesus, that, that the Bible is heavy on the intellectual side, the doctrinal side, the theological side. Like, those things do matter. What we think about God, what we believe about God, changes the way that we live. Paul knows this. So oftentimes when you start one of Paul's books, who, if you remember, right, Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew the Old Testament better than anybody else. And then one day on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ appears to Paul and tells Paul, essentially, you're no longer going to persecute Christians. You are going to build up Christians. You're going to plant churches. You're going to preach the gospel. And little did Paul know that much of the New Testament would be written by Paul himself. The chief of all sinners, he says. Right? So Paul gets saved and, and, and he, he starts to hear from this Jesus and he begins to learn theology and doctrine and then he starts to teach the application. It's important for us to know this. Really, really important. That we need to study the things of God. It's why we're doing Fundamentals of the Faith Next Door. It matters what you think about God. Your theology matters. And once you understand that, that what you think about God what you believe about God will change the way that you and I live. Uh, I came across a story of John McKay. John McKay was the former president of Princeton Seminary. And John McKay recalled the time when he was 14 years old. I love reading all, way back in the day of these individuals who were studying the deep things of God at like age 12, 13, 14. Isn't that pretty neat? At age 14, John McKay took his Bible into the hills of Scotland and he opened up the book of Ephesians and he began to study it. 14-year-old boy grabs his Bible, opens up to Ephesians in the Scotland hills, and upon reading it and studying it, these were his words of this book. He says this, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook. I had new experiences, new attitudes on other people. I began to love God, and Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I have been, I have been quickened. I have been made really alive. That's the hope of the book. Right? You've noticed on all of our material that we have chosen to use that word identity. Because in Ephesians, Ephesians is trying to help Christians understand who they are in Jesus. So let me just ask that simple question, like what is your identity and what have you done to achieve that identity? What do you think about when you think of yourself? Right, for me, I remember there was a particular time I thought, I thought, well, I was going to be an artist. I'll be an artist, right? And then you start, and in high school, that's when I was thinking that, and then I, and then I met my high school art teacher. She was super rad and super nice, but so like earthy, what she would call artsy-fartsy. I was like, that's not cool. I can't be an artist. I didn't know that being an artist could be cool. So I left that in the dust, right? And then I got into football, and I was like, yeah, I'm a football guy. That's my identity. And, and that seemed like more of a cool thing. And then you get into college, and you realize not everybody gets to play football all the way through college. And so then I got into bodybuilding, and I was like, I'm a bodybuilder. You can see that identity has stuck with me real well. I just eat like a bodybuilder, okay? And, and, and that wasn't my identity. I kept hitting these dead ends, right? Like, this isn't who I am. This isn't making me happy. Eventually, I thought, well, maybe I'm supposed to work for my dad and I'll run his business. 
that's what I am. I'll be a business guy, and I'll run a business, and I'll help my dad make money, and I'll make money. And, and he owned a couple car repair businesses. And, and then I just wasn't happy. It's not who I am. That's not my identity. And then eventually, I took a step to go to San Diego. And, and to really, really, when I moved to San Diego to go to the school of ministry down there, it was, it was to let go of all other earthly identities because they weren't leading to anything that was joy-filled. And it wasn't until much like McKay in the quote, it wasn't until I realized how awesome Jesus is and how beautiful his church is that I let go of all of those different identities and just embrace the only identity that matters. And the only identity that, that, that matters, that Paul will argue, is who you are before God the Father and how Jesus views you. What's really beautiful about this book, most of Paul's books are corrective. Let me give you an example. If you were to dive into the book of Corinthians, and you're like, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, what you need to understand about that particular book is Paul wrote that book because the Corinth church was a mess. They were immature in their faith. They were doing things in the church that they shouldn't be doing. Their doctrine was messy. Their lives were messy. So Paul writes two large books to the Corinthians basically to say, grow up. That's what Corinthians is. It's written to an immature church. And he's saying, you guys have got to grow up. I once thought like a child. I put away childish things. Now I think like a man. Those are Paul's instructions, right? But this book, this book isn't corrective. It's reflective. This is who we are in Jesus. This is what Paul's trying to do, remind you of who you are. So my first point this morning is to share with you the people and the city, the place of Ephesians. This place, as he writes, Paul writes in verse 1, those who are in Ephesus. This is, this is what, where Turkey is today. Some actually have taken the word Ephesus out because it, literally they believe that the letter was supposed to be circulated amongst all of the churches in what is known as Asia Minor. So this letter was to be circulated and read aloud. And so Paul, Paul wants this letter to go as many Christians as possible, and we're part of, these, part of that group. Paul's writing to us as well. And this church started in a pretty miraculous way. But before we get there, let, let me describe to you the place of Ephesus. Because the place of Ephesus has some similarities uh, to Truckee as well. Right? Truckee has a major freeway, freeway that goes through it, right? You're aware of this? It's called I-80. Right? It, it exists. It's right over there. And everything between California and the rest of the nation and the rest of the nation to California essentially has to come through I-80, Right? There, there is a lot of things that go through I-80. Human trafficking, drugs. There's actually legitimate trailers that come here, except for when it snows and the Safeway gets empty, right? You know when the freeway shuts down for a period of time because we're all eating top ramen. And this is similar in, in Ephesus. Ephesus was a port city. They didn't have I-80, but they had a port city. It was a port city. About 250,000 people lived in Ephesus. And it was such a bustling city. It was a booming city. It had a tremendous amount of wealth that lived in one part of Ephesus and a tremendous amount of poverty that lived in another part of Ephesus. So you had the haves and you had the have-nots. You had those who, who owned the shipping companies and operated with those shipping companies. And you had those who worked at the port of the shipping companies. The workers. There was a lot of workers and a lot of rich people. And in Ephesus, Ephesus was the center of false idol worship to Rome. 
You could almost say that Ephesus was the birthplace of all of the false ideologies and all the false worship in the, the age of that time. In fact, in, in Ephesus, it was known for two really ornate, beautiful, large, and well-known structures. The first structure was the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. It was depicted, literally, if you were to look up this particular goddess, she's depicted with multiple breasts because she is the goddess of fertility. You were to worship her if you want to get pregnant. You're to worship her if you want to have blessings, if you want your crops. I mean, th this, this false worship station was filled with decadence and grossness, even though on the outside it had a veneer of beauty had 127 white marble columns, each of them 62 feet tall. It was the center place of worship. Everyone would go to worship Diana, to worship Artemis. And if that wasn't enough, not too far off from the actual temple of false worship was a large stadium that you can still go to today. A stadium that, 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 fill, that was filled with 25,000 people at its peak. 25,000 people would come into this stadium in this city of Ephesus, which was an important political place, educational place, <clears throat> and in that stadium, what did they do? Well, of course, they did things like the Olympic kind of games, you know, games like that. That's where we see the gladiators fighting. It's where we see animals fighting. But it also became the place where one of the places where Christians were thrown to lions. So you've got this bustling city, and it's filled with false worship. People are running to, to this particular location to worship their God. It's no different than those who worship the mountains. It's no different than those who worship creation, and they go to their ski hill, and they bow down to Solemn, to K2, to whatever else it may be. There's nothing wrong with skiing, but there's something wrong when you make skiing, snowboarding, bodybuilding, football, any of those things, you make those your identity, and you're off base. You miss out on the goodness of God. You miss out on the wealth of God. And so this place is a lot like Truckee. It's bustling. People are coming in and out of it. It's got tremendous amounts of potential for the gospel. <clears throat> and so Paul, Paul actually, along his third missionary journey, right, Paul gets saved. And he becomes a missionary, right? He becomes a missionary of missionaries. Paul, Paul, like just, he knuckles up. He's the guy who used to persecute Christians. He's always been very radical in his faith. And now he's radical in his faith in church planning. He's going from one place to another. And he stops by Ephesus around his third missionary trip. And he leaves behind a power couple above all power couples. Maybe you've heard of them, Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla and Aquila, they end up basically help building the church. In fact, we find a particular place where Priscilla and Aquila hear a guy by the name of Apollos. Ever heard of Apollos? And Apollos is known for being eloquent. That's what scripture tells us in Acts. He's eloquent. He's, he's a good speaker. People like to listen to him. But Priscilla and Aquila noticed that his theology and his doctrine was a little off. So this power couple who's left behind in Ephesus, they take Apollos off to the side and they describe to Apollos the theology and the doctrine of God more correctly, right? How many of you know, <laughs> I might be one of them, that can speak, but they're still learning their theology and doctrine, right? Or they're good speakers, but they're not really talking about the Bible, 
right? That's kind of what Apollos' deal is. Apollos it, it would, be a, would be a preacher that I will not name that, that may be on public television, and he sounds awesome, but his theology is so weak, and his doctrine is so weak. He needs substance. He needs correcting. That's what Priscilla and Aquila did. Now, the other thing Paul did in Ephesus, Acts tells us that he spent three months in a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. Has anybody heard of the Hall of Tyrannus? It was a synagogue. It was a synagogue that was specifically in Ephesus, and it was used for training. It was like a missional school. It was like a seminary. It was like a Bible school. So Paul taught in this Hall of Tyrannus, and Priscilla and Aquila have left this tremendous heritage, and then Paul being Paul can't stay in one place too long because he's got other churches to plant. He's got other letters to write, and he's got more people he needs to offend. So he leaves the church behind to a trusted young man. That trusted young man is Timothy. And these are the letters that we receive in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. This young pastor who takes this church over for Paul that Priscilla and Aquila helped build and strengthen. And listen to what Paul's encouragement to Timothy is in Ephesus. I urge you, Timothy, remain at Ephesus. Okay, I'm a pastor and this ministers to me. Right? Because what is... If you read scripture and you want it to apply to you, you have to ask the question, what would God maybe say? What God is saying to Timothy, and I think he's saying to a lot of pastors in America, remain, be faithful, keep teaching the word of God, keep preaching the gospel. He says, remain in Ephesus. Why? What's the purpose? He gives the purpose. You have to stay so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Do you hear what's happening? Ephesus is too important of a location. The people of Ephesus are too important to God. It needs a pastor who's going to stick it through, no matter how difficult the people get, no matter how hard it is, no matter how expensive it is to live in the area. You got to remain, dude. You got to keep teaching. You got to keep preaching. You got to keep sharing the gospel with people. And then he says, make sure no one else teaches different doctrine. So, so part of the job of a shepherd is to love the sheep, and sometimes the shepherd has to pick up rocks and throw them at wolves and say, that doctrine can't be taught here. That theology can't be taught here. Because good doctrine and theology matter. And he tells Timothy, in addition to that, he says, don't allow those leaders, those people, to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculation, right? That's to say, God, you're not to have teachers that make God something that's not touchable because Jesus makes God touchable. And there is a theology and a doctrine that you can teach that makes God more mysticism or more mystic than actually gospel-centered, right? We have clarity in our theology, clarity in our doctrine, clarity in the gospel. Jesus has made it clear And Ephesus is this church that's planted in this place by some really awesome people. And I don't know if you know this or not, but it didn't take too long because of this kind of work that Paul put forth, that Priscilla and Aquila put forth, and that Timothy put forth, that Rome became an official Christian nation, basically. And you know one of the first things that they did? They shut down the 200, uh, I'm sorry, the 25,000 person stadium. They got rid of the entertainment that was distracting the masses. 
Just let that hang out there for a little bit. Then, then after they shut it down, they made one particular entrance. They shut down the main entrance, and they made a new entrance called the Martyr's Entrance. And it was an entrance into that closed stadium that was used to basically commemorate the saints that had given their lives for the gospel. I just want you to understand something. We're not there now, but I want you to understand that, that if we have a heart of Scripture and a heart of the gospel like Priscilla and Aquila, like Paul and like Timothy, the impact in a community cannot be overstated. You can turn everything upside down. And so in this city, we also know, however, right, to just tie in and understanding what's happening in the city, not only did it get flipped, turned upside down, but later... In its prophetic writings, Jesus writes to this church. This church is so important that in in Revelations, in what is called the apocalyptic literature of the New Testament, Jesus writes to Ephesus. And he says to the church, the words of him, he says, who hold the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are the churches of that day. Listen to what he says of, of the church. Imagine if this was our letter. I know your works. You toil. You're patient. You have endurance, and you cannot bear with those who are evil. Your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, he goes on and says, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles. Stupid beard. They have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. This is in Revelations 2. I just want you to, to see the front end of this real quick because God says, listen, I, I know that church. This is really key, and this is important, Sierra Bible Church. God knows you. He knows our church. He knows this church. And, and just like this church, he knows exactly where we're strong. He knows what we do well. Here he says, I know that you know how to fight against false teaching. I know that you have truth. I know that you toil and you work hard for your community. And he goes on and he says this. Then he goes, however, I have something against you, Jesus says. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. At some point, this church got so wrapped up in doing the gospel, they forgot to love the one who authored the gospel. Right? They were so busy doing the spiritual thing, they weren't worship, worshiping the one who gave the spiritual thing. And so the encouragement in this particular side of things is that we would see that we can have all of our good works, all of our theology in line, all of our doctrine in line, but if we don't know how to love Christ and we don't know how to love one another, Paul would say in Corinthians, correcting that immature church, if you have not love, you are a clanging symbol. So our teaching... And our right theology and doctrine, which we'll cover in the first three chapters, matter. But if they're not informed by adoration towards Jesus, an affinity towards Christ, a love for the gospel and a love for who the Lord is, then all of that teaching and theology is just noise. Are you guys hearing me this morning? A heart for Christ at its foundation will draw us into the deeper knowledge of who Jesus is. And when those two things come together, the church becomes an unstoppable force. The, the encouragement this morning so far would be, know your Bible and love the one who wrote it. 
There's some themes in this book. The themes that we will cover in this book, the theological themes, are like this. First of all, you'll find in Ephesians, you'll find this word used six times. It's the word mystery. And when you look at that word, if you were to, to say, okay, what is the mystery? This is an interesting word because Paul will keep using it in multiple different ways. He says in Ephesians 3, chapter 3, for instance, he says, this mystery. And so the question we should ask is, what's the mystery? What's the thing? Now, the word mystery defined is a veiled truth. Something that's always been true that now has been brought to light. It's a truth that nobody else has seen yet. It's true, but nobody knows it's true because it's not been talked about. And that particular truth, again, in its original language, that mystery is an unveiled truth that brings with it awe, humility, and amazement. So when Paul says, I have something that has always been true, that not even the prophets of old were totally aware of. There were hints of it, but it was still a mystery. They didn't understand all of it. I'm going to bring it to light is what Paul's basically saying. Here it is in front of you. And when that truth is put in front of you, it causes humility, amazement, and awe. What are those mysteries? Mystery number one, Gentiles are also heirs to the greatness of God. That's a new mystery. That, that's, that's one of those things. If you remember, you had the Old Testament. What's the Old Testament? God loves Hebrews. How many of you are Hebrews this morning? Dang, not even one. That means you're all Gentiles. The mystery is that you would be in a church. That's what's been unveiled. We're not in a synagogue. We're not filled in a room filled with Hebrews and Jews. We're filled with dirty Gentiles. That's what Scripture calls you. Do you know what they used to call you in the, in the New Testament before Jesus? Dogs. And that, that's not like the rap cool way, you know? Like, that's my dog. It's like, you're, no, it's your dog. You're a dog. Jesus brings you in, which leads us to the second mystery, that the church, which is now made up of Hebrews and Jews and Gentiles, is Christ's body here on earth now. That's the new mystery. Some of you are like, where's Jesus? You're his body. You are his visible representation on this earth. And Ephesians will tell us that he gives inside of his church multiple gifts, varying grace, he says. Different graces, different giftings in this body. So that some of us can sing and some of us cannot. Some of us can preach and some of us can't. Some of us love being in nursery. Some of you should never be in nursery. Some of us love being behind the scenes. Some of us love to be able to take our treasure and give that to the gospel and to the Lord. It doesn't matter what the gift is. What matters is that you see that all of the gifts are valuable to Jesus. In fact, what's so silly in the American church is the way the Bible says it is that those gifts of the body, those parts of the body that are visible, that you can actually see, are actually less important than those that you can't see. Which means my particular position is not nearly as important as somebody like a Marley or an Amy or like our deacon board who serve with their hands and serve with their feet and no one ever sees it except for Jesus. That's some of the best gifts of the body. So the gospels for us are part of his body. And then thirdly, 
that the riches, the fullness, and the blessings of Jesus would be revealed to us. The mystery of God's riches, fullness, and his blessings would be made known. Right? So there's a story of a gal by the name of Hetty Green. Ever heard of Hetty Green? Me either. But if you read a lot, you'll come across these kind of things. Hetty Green was labeled as America's greatest miser, which is an old school way of saying she was a cheapskate. She died in 1916, and when she died, she left behind a $100 million estate. In 1916, with inflation, that's like $2 billion. Not a funny joke. But she was so cheap. She was known for a few things. First of all, she was known to eat cold oatmeal because she didn't want to spend money on heating the water. At one point, her son had a severe leg injury, and she took so long trying to find a free clinic, they had to amputate it. It has been said that she actually actually made her death come upon her faster than she would have because she actually, what led to her death was a stroke that she had while arguing the merits of skim milk because it was cheaper than whole milk. The reason I share that story is because without Ephesians, the book literally is written for those of us who might be prone to treating our spiritual resources in Jesus the same way that she did with the money that she had. Such believers are in danger of suffering from spiritual malnutrition because they do not take advantage of their great storehouse and the spiritual nourishment and the resources that are at their disposal. That's why this book is so important. Because you need to know the well that you're pulling from for the resources in your life. right? This book, in addition, if you remember, I, I came up with that quote with McKay. I didn't come up with the quote. I found that quote from McKay saying, saying, man, I finally have new life in this book, a new identity. This particular book, not only has it been called Paul's magnum opus, it's also been called The Believer's Bank. The Christian's checkbook and the treasure house of the Bible. Some have called this a mini doctrinal book that shows us the accessibility of Jesus and the riches we have in Jesus. In this book, we'll see that God is accessible, God is glorious, God is kind, God is loving, merciful, powerful, He's a promise keeper, and He's wise. We're going to find these awesome, beautiful things of Jesus that help us see that you don't have to be labeled by any of the cheap labels of identity that the world gives you, but you can be identified by the identity that Jesus gives you. And I mean, I, you've heard me say this before because it, it's one of those things that really, it's a picture that depicts uh, how off-base our identity is in our society. Right? We're one of the only cultures that really, maybe some places in Europe, but, but we've really attached our identity to the kind of vehicle we drive. Yeah, Like, I would never be caught dead in a Prius. You know, I don't like what that would say about me. But it's silly, right? I, I remember when um, we had some uh, missionary kids from Spain come over. It was like 20 of them or something like that. And they would come to church, and in the parking lot, they would be like, they literally were like, why, do you, why does everyone drive monster trucks here? Because if you go to Spain, and I've been there, their cars are literally tissue boxes with wheels on them. 
They're like this big. They, like, their identity is not wrapped up in their vehicles. They don't even travel as much as we do. But that's how silly it is. And I want to give you three things where Paul, Paul shows us, and we'll close here after these three things, three things about Paul's identity and he knew who, who he was. Number one, Paul starts out the letter, and what does he say of himself? I'm an apostle. Now, the word apostle literally means sent one. Now, I need to make some clarifications on teaching in teaching because this is, this is important. There are only 12 apostles. What I mean by this is that God has seen fit for those 12 men. Paul is one of those 12 men. He became one of those 12 men on the road to Damascus. And the qualifications to be an apostle, to have that title of an apostle, meant at least three things. One thing it meant, and this is from Scripture. I can give you the, the verses. They're actually in your uh, handout. <clears throat> Number one, you had to actually see Jesus alive. You had to see him alive. That's why it was so important for Jesus to manifest himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. If Paul had not seen Jesus alive, he wouldn't be an apostle. You also had to have miracles. There were certain miracles that established the church and grew the church. Here's what I'm arguing this morning. Number one, there are no more apostles the way the New Testament describes apostles. Okay? God says the church was built on the foundation of the apostles' teaching. And as the church is built up from the body of Christ, which is you and I, the cornerstone is Jesus. Everyone's like, Jesus. <laughs> the cornerstone's Jesus. There are two things we don't get to mess with. We don't get to mess with the foundation of the house. Right? If you have a home, don't mess with your foundation. It will fall. And the cornerstone, the thing that holds it all together. Everything else is kind of trimmings on the house. God's going to use special gifts. But this is Paul. He, he, he's a, a, an apostle who's writing scripture, who's establishing the church in a way that none of us can do this morning. However, that word sent one, which is what apostles mean, is true of all Christians. So when we think of our identity in Jesus, you are, like Paul, commanded to be a sent one to take Jesus everywhere that you go. In fact, the number one thing that's listed in Ephesians, 15 times, right? The word riches is used five times, fullness and filled up six times, glory eight times, grace 12 times, which gives us access to these things, but in Christ and in him, 15 times. You take Jesus everywhere you go. You are unified with Christ. You are one with Christ. He is with you, and your sin does not keep him from you, my friends. And that is part of the good news. Because Jesus has dealt with your sin on the cross. So, <clears throat> let me get back to my notes. Where was I? An apostle, that's number one. Number two, Paul was convinced that God had a plan for his life. Are you? You should be. Paul says it really clear here. Paul, I'm an apostle. How am I an apostle? By the will of God. Paul knew I am what I am because of the will of God. And that idea that God has a will for you and God had a will for Paul, God does have plans for you. And they're not always going to be as people quote Jeremiah out of context, you know, to bless you and all that. That may happen. But more than anything, it's that 
Jesus Christ and his message of salvation and reconciliation would be born through you, whether that's in, in trial, tribulation, in riches, in poor, in death, in weakness, in sickness. It does not matter. Jesus is there. He knew God had a plan for him. Church, God has a plan for you specifically. This is what, the scripture says it this way, that he has good works for us which he predestined and planned in advance. How crazy is it that God formed you in your mother's womb? He said, in his perfect creation, I'm going to give you this much hair. To the glory of God, I'm bald. I'm going to make you this tall. To the glory of God, I'm short. Right? I'm going to give you these. There are certain things that if you are a parent, you know God, when he gives you those kids, he gave you their personality that he gave them. You don't get to change that. You have to discover who they are. Right? They're their own people. Right? They come out and they think their own things and they say their own things. They get mad at certain things and not mad at other things. They naturally like certain things and naturally dislike certain things. God formed that in them. And he says that you were wonderfully made. It's a miracle. That's one of the reasons why we're so pro-life. Because there's nothing more beautiful than the promise of new life in a child. And not only that, but if we look in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we can see that Satan's plan has always been to destroy the womb. But not only that, the scripture says to us that he created not only everything about us, but also the path of good works that we're, to, we're supposed to walk on. That he planned that in advance. It's just so crazy to me. At some point when my mom got pregnant with me at 16 years old, that God in his sovereignty knew that he was going to lead me on a certain path. My mom didn't know it. My dad didn't know it. I didn't know it. My grandparents didn't know it. My teachers didn't know it. God knows it, and it's our job to walk in it. Paul was convinced he had that God had a plan for him. Next one. Paul knew who he was writing to. Saints. Church, that's you. Not because of what you do, not because of your good works, not because you're doing miraculous things, but because God has seen fit to turn you from a sinner into a saint. And your identity, though you have sin, and though you wrestle with sin, and though at times... From the pulpit, you'll hear pastors like myself tell you you are a sinner. At some point, you need to have enough maturity to know, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need to know that. But more importantly, I'm a saint. Your identity as a saint trumps your identity as a sinner. Are you hearing me? Our society wrestles with shame and guilt. What I just said to you, if it's... If the Holy Spirit will make it click in your brain, click in your heart, resonate with your soul, you'll walk out of here and go, holy smokes, I'm no longer seen as a sinner. I'm no longer under condemnation. The world can say whatever it wants about me. The world can tell me that I'm trash. The, the world can tell me that I'm not good enough. Shoot, you can even email me this week and tell me I'm not a good preacher. That I don't shepherd well. And yeah, you know what? It's going to hurt. It's going to sting. But at the end of the day, I know where I'm built. I'm right on that rock. I've not lost my sonship in Christ. I've not lost my place at the table with him. 
When I go to heaven, I have a place. It's prepared for me beforehand because I'm a saint. And my friends, so are you. Don't let your mama tell you that you're something that you're not. Don't let your husband or your wife tell you that you're something that you're not. Don't let your kids tell you that you're something that you're not. You allow yourself to allow Christ to declare over you who you are. And you, my friends, are a son of God. And Jesus, Jesus came so that God the Father would see no difference between you and his own son, Jesus. Let that resonate with you. That God in heaven sees you exactly like he sees Jesus Christ. If you get that, if you finally will understand that, not only will you be saved, you will walk in precious newness. Everything will look new. Everything will look better. Everything will look more palpable. There's nothing that can shake you or rock you because you know exactly who you are in Christ. And that's why, G- why Paul says, says here at the end, I write to you in Ephesus, those who are faithful. You know what's so neat about that word? Is I think Paul knows exactly what I know. No one in the church is actually faithful. But because Jesus and the church are one, we're seen as faithful. Because his faithfulness has been imputed to us. Man, that's good news. So over the coming months, maybe a couple years we'll spend in here, I don't know. One verse at a time. Said there was 155 verses, that's 155 Sundays. You do the math. (laughs) Would you stand with me one last time? Worship team will come up. And let's pray together and be thankful for that identity that Jesus has set upon us, the riches that he's given us, the potential in Truckee, just like the potential in Ephesus is going to be made possible. And, and I'm foolish enough to think that God can use our Christian community to change Truckee upside down. I believe that. And, and really, I think all Jesus is asking for is a few others. It doesn't take many just a few others to actually be foolish enough to believe that God could use this church to change Truckee. It only took 12 to change the world for crying out loud. So we just need a few of you. I'm only talking to just a few of you, right? I want all of you to be involved. I want all of you to buy in, obviously. Obviously, because I think Jesus is worth it. But for just a few of you that are hearing, just it's time for, for, for God to awaken your faith. That your faith would come alive and that you would see that you have an identity in Jesus that's worth being here for, and that identity in Jesus that you can be sent out into that world and you can actually be a part of bringing more people to Christ and healing their lives. I've been doing this now for 20-something years, and I'm telling you, like, like it never, never fails. There's always a few people in the church that God uses to invite people who don't know Jesus to the church, and then those people get saved, and God's inviting you to be a part of that because you have every gift, every tool, every bit of God's wealth in your back pocket to do it. There's no excuses. You have it. Some of you, well, I don't know the Bible. I don't care. You got Jesus. Share what you know. Well, I just know that God is good. Well, there you go. Preach that. God's good. Come to SBC. 830. That's too early. Good. We got a 1031. Oh, but I'm hungry at that time. Oh, we got a fellowship Sunday. We got food that week. Don't let them share their stupid excuses. They got to get to church. Lord, we thank you. You're doing work in us, and you will be faithful to complete it. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What peace and rest come when we realize and we really understand that we are children of God. Let's sing this next song. It's called, it's a new one. You've already won, so 
we know that whatever battle we're facing today, remember the end of the story. God's already won. Don't